Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 92. Holy moly. Hey, you guys. Thanks for letting us take a little break last week. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Our technical difficulties were that we we couldn't get our shit together. Yeah. <laughs> it was technically hard technically to do a very podcast. difficult. <laughs> but I hope you guys enjoyed that bonus quickie that we had posted on our Patreon. So we were talking before the podcast and we're both very excited about – the vaccine news in Georgia. Georgia has been the very last state. We're number 50, like in terms of number of percentage of people who have been vaccinated, number of shots, number percentage of people, like all of yeah. the things we've been in last place. Uh, and then all of a sudden this week, they have opened up the um, criteria and so many more people are going to be able to get vaccinated. Yeah. And a word on the playground is that I I know because I talked to a mom that works at the CDC and a word on the playground is that there's supposed to be a a surplus of vaccines coming our way. And it's just like, you get a vaccine and you get a vaccine and you, we all get vaccines. We all get vaccines. And I hope that you guys are all going to get a vaccine. Let's all get vaccinated. Yeah. Let's Please don't just rely on everybody else to get vaccines so that you don't have to. Do your part. Do your part. Do your get, part. Get a, it stuck in your arm. It's a whole thing. Take a picture. Put it on Instagram. Send yeah. it to us. We'll put it on our Instagram. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting. And I can't wait until a time when we can record in person again. That will be weird. That will. I like I'm not used to looking at your face anymore. <laughs> you can't see how much I'm fidgeting and looking in other directions. And, oh look. A dog. Oh look a dog. Yeah. You can't yeah. see that, but you will soon. I will that's soon. Okay. And I'm gonna have to get used to your dumb face again. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, your gorgeous face. I can't wait to. I can't wait to get used to your dumb, gorgeous, fidgety face. You know, I love your gorgeous, fidgety face, too. Or non-fidgety. You're always very um, focused. So focused. And I appreciate that about you. <laughs> uh, ben, think, ben, ben says that I'm overly focused because I can focus to the point where I can literally, like, just – not hear anything around me. Like he'll be sitting next to me and I'll be like reading. And by reading, I mean looking at my phone. <laughs> See, I like that too. I like, I'm like that if I, I've, I've always told Zach that too, because he gets mad if he thinks I'm not paying attention. But if I'm reading something, I can't hear anything around me. And yeah. So I can focus like that. But if I'm like, if I don't have something to focus my eyes on, like yeah. your face, <laughs> like my dumb face, I'm like, <laughs> I'm all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm right now, I have my desk set up so it's like just facing the wall and on the wall is um, 
A picture of my face? <laughs> a picture of your dumb face. No. <laughs> uh, two kitties. It's a kitty, a kitty calendar. And so I'm looking at two kitties who are looking back at me. They look Hanging very- from a branch saying, hang in there. <laughs> they should be. They look very disappointed, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> they look a little judgmental. Like, you should be working. Um, you know what they think they're saying? What? Get to your fucking quickies. I, that's a good. All right, kitties. All right, kitties. We'll do it. All right, I'm first. Okay. Okay. Jen, do you remember how you used to like party? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean just you in particular. I mean like all of us. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't think some people stopped. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, I, it wasn't coronavirus that stopped me. It was age and children. <laughs> right. Um, but do you remember back – I mean, I I – I was very – I mean, I was always, like, I went to bed early. Like, I would always sneak off and go to bed. But I but I also – I don't ever – I didn't ever want to miss out. I never wanted to go home if other people were out. Like, I always want to have one more drink. You know, like, I always – I just love the feeling of getting caught up in being out. And there was, like, nothing worse when you had to leave because you had plans with someone else. And you were like, but I want to stay and party. And I don't want to have to go home and, like, watch a movie or whatever. Uh-huh. So I'm sure we all told some white lies in order to stay out to keep partying. But I doubt we – either My you or I – My phone's dead. Just shut your phone off. My phone's dead. Uh, I, I got to stay Lady Gaga with- wrote a whole song about it. <laughs> I got to stay with Jen because she's – And I'm not going to put the telephone out in the club. Okay. <laughs> that one. That one. Yeah, yeah. I it definitely can um, – could decipher it from your rendition. <laughs> I'm in the club, it's a bump, but you're not gonna reach my telephone. <laughs> that one, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lady Gaga yeah. knows. Anyway, <laughs> so this British man uh, wanted to stay out drinking with his friends. So instead of just turning off his telephone, he texted his girlfriend saying that he'd been kidnapped. Oh, my God. Right. He said, I owed these guys basically what was would be the equivalent of $82 US dollars. And, and so I've been kidnapped. I'm being held against my will. And his girlfriend, gullible, believed him and called the police. Or maybe she was just like, all right, motherfucker, I'm calling your bluff. And so she called police. And police immediately start searching for this man because they're like, we have a person who's being kidnapped and has been reported as kidnapped. And so they start searching CCTV. For those of you who don't watch as much many British procedurals as I do, that's closed circuit TV footage. Um, Mm -hmm. And they found him on the footage close to his home. So we're able to find him. And when they found him, he was with a friend and they arrested the friend because they were like, this is the kidnapper. But then the man immediately confessed and was like, no, no, no. It was, I lied to my girlfriend. I just wanted to stay out partying. Uh, oh and so, of God. course, yeah, police were not pleased when they learned the kidnapping was a hoax. A spokesperson said it was one of the most foolish and irresponsible incidents ever encountered by the department. Detective Inspector Joe Clausen said considerable resources and time went into finding this man who, it transpires, made the entire thing up so he could stay out and party. And it turns out that this is actually not uncommon. It's happened before. 
So in 2013, a Texas man was actually charged with making a false statement after he told his wife he'd been kidnapped because he wanted to go out drinking with his oh friends. Oh my God. Like there are millions of better excuses. Right? I'm like, I, just don't involve the police. Like, how much do you want to bet too that they then go home and like turn that around on their wives and girlfriends? Like, what did you call the police for? It's like, well, you told me you were fucking kidnapped. Look, I thought I just thought you knew I would be joking jesus oh my god well you have to make a big deal out of everything you know i have to tell you like this well it's a kind of a long story but i'm just gonna give you the short version of it was when i was a kid my sister we had just watched the movie uh when a stranger calls which is Uh fucking terrifying and i was babysitting my little brother with my friend melissa we were both at home watching him and my sister thought it would be funny to go to a payphone and call me and be like pretty girl and like and like <gasps> say all these things into the phone. So I had just watched When a Stranger Calls. So at first I was like whatever, you know, to the person saying all these things to me or whatever. Yeah. And then she was like, I could see you're wearing a green shirt. <laughs> and I was like, okay, now I'm starting to get scared. So I called the police. Oh no, I tried to trace the call because this was like back when like tracing calls was a big thing. You like start 69 to So I tried to trace the call and then no, I like called the like telephone operator. And we're like, and someone then, just called me, call what's the number? And she said we can't trace the call for some reason. And in my, you know, 11-year-old mind, I, I heard the caller is coming from within the house. It's coming from inside the house. <laughs> so I, like, grabbed my little brother and I ran out of the house. And, I and like, my, and my friend, too, we jumped, like, two flights of stairs without even touching the ground. And I run <laughs> outside and I tell everybody, all my neighbors, this is Long Island, New York, where neighbors all just sit on the front lawn all the time just yeah. waiting for stuff to go down. So I'm like, there's a killer in my house. Oh, my God. <laughs> And so then everybody was like, what? And so they're all trying, like, they all know that, like, my house is crazy anyway. So they're not really taking me seriously. But then I go into the garage where there's, like, a phone in the garage. And I'm on the phone with the police, like, giving them my address. Like, 76, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden my <laughs> sister comes running down the street going, like, it was me. <laughs> she had gone to the 7-Eleven on the corner. To call me to prank me. And like my poor mom was like just trying to work. She worked at an Italian restaurant. She was a hostess. She was just trying to do her fucking job. Yeah. And like we're over at our house just like every day the police would get called or one of us would kill each other. (laughs) My poor mother. Um, And yeah, so... Then, of course, I got in trouble for calling the police. That's what I was going to ask. I was like, who That's got in trouble? Me. Oh, I, it was always no. me. So I got in trouble for being dramatic. <laughs> Lord knows I'm dramatic. And uh, for calling the police and, and like, making a scene, on, like, in the front lawn and getting all the neighbors involved. And so it's all my fault. <laughs> You're like, that's what you want a kid to do. I know. Like what? Anyway, so that's why I feel for those wives because I'm like, you know what? I bet they just got in trouble. (laughs) But it's not their fault. It's not their fault. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great story. Your story is great. All right. Are you ready for my quickie? I'm ready. I feel like I just gave you one, but I'll give you a bonus. <laughs> um, give me a bonus quickie. Okay. So um, 
This story comes from an article for today.com written by Rachel Paula Abramson. And it is about some more TikTok love stories. So apparently this couple named, so there's a person on TikTok, you know, I don't know that much about the TikTok, named Brene Monkey that sent out an um a question to tiktokers asking them to send in what are their most unbelievable stories or whatever just like a quick unbelievable story and courtney Mankin made a video that has now gone completely viral with over 7.7 million views how do we do that yeah i know you're working on it but um so (laughs) i did get really excited when we had a video that got 600 views the other day that's a lot and so she was sending the story about her and her future husband, Nick Mongoose, who grew up together. So they grew up together in the same town. They were always um, like best buds or whatever. But in, then in middle school, their relationship turned romantic. So Courtney knew that in order for her mom to be okay with the fact that she was hanging out with this boy all the time, yeah. um, decided to invite him and his parents over to meet her family. And Courtney said that, you know, her mom is a very uh, unfiltered Italian woman. And she uh-huh. says whatever <laughs> comes to her mind. And that Nick's parents were very calm and kind of reserved, she said. You know, she knew this was the only way that her mom would be comfortable with her spending so much time in Nick's house. So right. when the parents came over. And how old um, were they at this point? Sorry. Four, 14. 14, okay. So real cute. Real yeah. Cute. And so so when her parents came over, Joy, her mother, just started asking Nick's parents a lot of questions. Like, And she started asking like, hey, what's Nick's birthday? And where did you give birth? And, and Courtney said she was confused. Like, why is my mom asking these weird questions? Yeah, like that's a little like, specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it turns out it's because Joy never forgets a face. And she remembered seeing Nick's parents, Don and Nick, at the Me- um, Monmouth Medical Center in 1994 when they gave birth. She remembered them from the hospital because <gasps> she said that his mom's very pretty and his dad was like skinny and lanky. And she remembers standing next to them tapping on the nursery window because their names were so close to each other, Monken and Monguso. So it turns out that they were both born on the exact same day in the exact same hospital, and they were in the beds next to each other because their names were so close. They were like laying there. And she, the, isn't that oh, crazy? That is crazy. And the mom, Joy's mom said that she remembered Nick because everybody called him the big fat baby. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and so she, what's funny is that, so they had this connection from birth and they went, they dated on and off again through high school and college. And she said that, you know, she would, the universe would always randomly bring them back together. She said that one day she was at a bathroom at a random bar with like 2000 people. And then all of a sudden she, she sees him and, you know, it just kept happening over and over and over. So then uh, last November outside of the school where um, Courtney teaches fourth grade, he actually said to her, it's always been you. And he, she said that she felt the same way. It's always been Nick. And now they're engaged and they're getting married and she's, she's five, two, and he is now six, two. So he grew out of his big fat baby face, but they're getting married. Isn't that so cute? That is so cute. I know they were just linked together from birth. I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. I so love that. that's 
That's, that's a my good quickie. One. That's Thanks. a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the. And then I love that she, the mom, remembered. I know. I love that too. That that reminds me of something that my husband's mom would do. My mother-in-law Linda. She she will. She'll never forget a face or she'll remember people forever. And she's like, if she meets anyone, she'll spend the next like 20 minutes figuring out some kind of a connection. Yeah. Like she's like, I know, I know you. I know, I know you. (laughs) She always, and it always works. Like she, like she's been on like an international cruise before and she's like, and it turns out we went to the same house. Cool. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Um, so. <laughs> Very cool. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a true crime story? Yes, I am. Okay. So, I got my information from a Daily Mail article, a People.com article, uh, a couple articles in the Willits News from Hawaii news.com and abcnews.com. Awesome. All right. Okay. And also Reddit, (laughs) which is where I found out about this story. So, okay. So in 1975, Vietnam veteran and journalist Mark Barnes got a random knock on his door that would change his life. He lived in this little studio apartment in Hawaii where he had moved after serving in Vietnam And on his doorstep was a beautiful young artist named Charlotte Moriarty and her friend. And they were knocking on his door because they were looking for directions to a hotel in the area. So this was 1975, no Google. And so they, the three just started talking and Charlotte and her friend ended up visiting with Mark for several hours. And something big must have really sparked between Mark and Charlotte. Um, Charlotte was described as like free spirited, bohemian, because the next day Charlotte moved in with Mark. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't really say if they were like, oh, you need a roommate, but they were together. So Charlotte had actually been married to a man named Donald Monheimer previously, and she had a daughter whose name was Jennifer, but for reasons that are not clear because I couldn't find them. Um, I'm sure they were clear at the time. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, who was six um, at this time, lived with her father in New Mexico. But she had a relationship with her mother, but her mother was living in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So Charlotte and Mark were pretty happy together. They lived together for about a year before Charlotte found out that she was pregnant. So in December 1976, Charlotte gave birth to a little boy who they named Marks, um, as in like, Karl Marx or Groucho Marx, I guess. Oh, okay. So his name was – it had to be very confusing around the house. Like, Poor so, Marx <laughs> at, at school. Like, no, Marx. So, yeah, I know. Her husband, Mark, and her baby, Marx. Um, mm-hmm. So it was Marx Panama Barnes Moriarty. That was his name. So according to neighbor, Charlotte and Mark were a friendly couple. They were good parents. And so – June 21st, 1977, was kind of a morning like any other. Mark and a neighbor had just built a deck on the front of the couple's house, and they were planting these birds of paradise plants around the corners. And Charlotte put six-month-old Mark's in his stroller and headed off to run some errands. She told Mark they were going to a shop that was just three blocks from their home. And they were all getting the house ready because Jennifer, Charlotte's now eight-year-old daughter, was coming for a visit from New Mexico. But Charlotte and baby Marks never came home. 
And so you can imagine if your girlfriend and young child were suddenly missing, you would go crazy. And according to Mark, that is exactly what he did. He said, I did everything but grab both sides of the island and shake it upside down to find them. The day they went missing, Mark went out searching for them and found Mark's baby stroller at a nearby bus stop. But he, there was no trace of Charlotte or the baby. However, this is kind of like where things get murky because police didn't get involved in this case until 20 days after Charlotte and the baby went missing. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so Mark says that he actually called police several times during the three weeks before police were officially notified, but there was no record in the police reports of him ever calling. So Mark admitted to police that he wasn't super concerned at first about their disappearance because Charlotte was actually known to disappear for like three or four days at a time. And he said she's always comes back fine. Um, You know, again, she was this free spirited artist and bohemian. But Mark said that he had gotten worried because Charlotte did seem to be having some kind of a psychiatric break after the birth of baby Marks. He said that she seemed fine that day that she left. But he said that after bringing the baby home from the hospital, she had worn a blindfold day and night for three weeks. And so Mark was left to care for the baby and his wife alone. Yes. So, and also, I mean, we also have to put this in context at the time. Like I'm, it sounds like postpartum psychosis, but that really wasn't a thing that people knew about at the time. So, right. Anyway. So Mark told police, he thought Charlotte, could have possibly run off with their baby. But of course, police and everyone else thought that Mark had something to do with their disappearance. So Mark was questioned repeatedly by police, but they were never able to connect him or find any trace of Charlotte and baby Mark's. And Mark said that for a year and a half, he drove the island every day looking for them, all while being the number one suspect in the mind of all of his neighbors and of the police and the case just went cold. There was like never a trace of them. So Mark eventually moved to California where he met and married a woman named Janine. And together the two had two daughters. But the police in Hawaii didn't forget about Charlotte and Mark's. Actually, seven several times over the years, cold case detectives visited Mark in California and gave him polygraph test, but they never got anywhere. They made it very clear he was the suspect in this case. And Charlotte's young daughter, Jennifer, also never forgot, of course. In 2001, 25 years after her mother's disappearance, she told a Hawaii newspaper, I can't explain what it's like not to know where a parent is. You're always looking, always scanning every crowd. I can't imagine. No. And to be like, I mean, she was like on her way to go visit when she went missing. It's So Charlotte's sister, Patricia, also never stopped searching and wondering about her sister and her infant nephew. And Patricia says that she believed in her heart that they were both dead and that Mark maybe had something to do with it and that there had never been justice for either. And she said that her sister would have never left her young daughter willingly without contacting them. And Patricia was so haunted by this this whole ordeal that in 2001, she hired a psychic to divine what had happened. And the psychic was actually somebody in Hawaii that police had worked with before. So Patricia felt like she could trust what she said and that maybe the police would rely on what this woman said. Wow. And, the, and what the psychic told Patricia confirmed what her suspicions were. 
The psychic said that Charlotte and Marks had been murdered and that their bodies were buried on the windward side of Oahu. So Patricia and Jennifer took this information to the Honolulu County Police and the Crime Stoppers coordinator, who was a detective, said that they had Patricia had called her to get the police to start actively investigating her sister's case based on the psychic's information but she said that they don't rely on psychics she said we're always reviewing cases but this is one of the more unusual cases obviously you're never going to get a search warrant based on a psychic's review of information and police actually said at the time like the case was still open and that its disposition was filed as pending so it was still an open case but nobody was actively investigating and police actually encouraged patricia to have charlotte declared dead which is like kind of a legal move that would allow police to devote more resources to the case so because right now she was just a missing person Mm -hmm. so police didn't find anything they did search they didn't find anything to confirm the psychic's claim but jennifer and patricia's took a trip to hawaii to meet with um, investigators and they did convince officials to reactivate the investigation which included getting age progression pictures of Marks and Charlotte added to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children database, which was actually not started until 1984. So in 1977, when they went missing, it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So that was 2001. And with that, the case went completely cold again until... January of 2011, when a 35-year-old man named Steve Carter read about the case of Carolina White. So Carolina White was this woman who was in Atlanta. She had moved to Atlanta after she'd grown up, and she was shocked to find herself on the website missingkids.com, listed as a baby who had been kidnapped from a hospital in Harlem. And so Carolina actually discovered that she had been raised by the family who had stolen her. So she didn't know she was adopted or that she she thought i mean she had always been told that this was her birth family but she had some suspicion she's like i've never felt like them i don't look like anyone and so she looked herself up and found that she had been kidnapped from the hospital oh my god that's like a book that i read over and over when i was in elementary school i remember there was like this like the face on the milk carton i think is the name of the book oh really um yeah but that's crazy oh wow so yeah so So this man, Steve Carter, knew that he was adopted. He'd been legally adopted at age four by a couple named Steve and Pat Carter, and he grew up happily in in South New Jersey. But there were some details about his life that he called suspicious. So such as the fact that like his birth certificate was created when he was almost a year old. And his birth certificate said that his birth father was Hawaiian, which didn't make sense for him because he was this blonde haired blonde-haired, blue-eyed child. Mm-hmm. And the Carters had always been straight with Steve and said that, you know, you were adopted. We had, you know, uh, made sure he had the freedom to choose his own destiny. He said, we belong to an adoptee birth parent clearinghouse that connects people who are looking for each other, but never received any messages. And when Steve turned 18, his parents asked him if they wished to continue registering on the site. And he said, no. And so Steve actually didn't really grow up with any interest in finding his biological parents. But after hearing about Carolina, he thought, I'll just look at this missingkids.com website. And so he entered his age and his birth location into the database. And that is when he found himself looking at a picture 
that looked exactly like him. Oh, my God. And what he was looking at was the age progression composite picture that Jennifer and Patricia had convinced the police to make in 2001. (gasps) The name under the picture was Mark's Panama Barnes Moriarty. And he said, I got chills. I was like, holy crap, that's me. Oh, my God. Like, you found yourself. He found himself. Wow. So he contacted the Hawaiian authorities who asked Steve to take a DNA test, and it took eight months for the results to come back in. And when they did, it was a match. Steve Carter was baby Marks. (gasps) That's insane. It's insane. And, I mean, the Honolulu Police Department was like, in all honesty, they didn't think it was going to be a match. They were like, I'm – Okay, like, what are the odds that this guy finds himself from, like, an age progression picture from a baby photo? Mm -hmm. But it was him. So from the adoption records and other files, Steve was actually able to piece together some of what happened. And despite what police and everyone else thought at the time, it actually had nothing to do with his biological father, Mark Barnes. So what Steve learned was that the day he and his mother left home on their walk – a local woman on the other side of Oahu had come home and def- and found Charlotte and a baby in their house and oh, just wow. like randomly. And so police were called and Charlotte actually told them that her name was Jane Amy and that the baby's name was Tenzin Amy. She gave them a false date of birth for Marks and even claimed that his father, whose name she didn't reveal, was a native Hawaiian, which is why that was listed on Steve's birth certificate. And so his mother was taken to a psychiatric hospital and baby Marks was placed in protective care. And doctors did ultimately want to reunite the mother and son. But a couple days after uh, Charlotte was checked into the psychiatric, psychiatric hospital, she left against medical advice and oh wow, and never returned. And so she left her the son baby. to become a ward of the state. And so when Mark Barnes reported his son and girlfriend missing, police just didn't make the connection, which is unbelievable. But because I think it took so long for them to make – for him to make the report, like Mm -hmm. the baby had already been in the orphanage for several weeks. So they weren't thinking like when they got the report, they weren't looking for a baby who had been there for weeks. They were looking for someone – like, you know, they were looking, they, they didn't come around to that. And so it actually ends up that the baby, baby Marks was in that orphanage only 30 miles from where he lived with his parents for three years. Oh my God. <gasps> that is just like, oh, I hate that the technology was not there to right. be able to be like, well, there's this orphan that yeah we've had. Oh, that's, oh it's like God. so, it, it's so confounding that they're. Like, how could they not have pieced it together? Like, it just is, it's so confounding. But so when he was like three and a half years old, a social worker introduced the boy to Steve and Pat, who were stationed in Oahu at the, at the time. And um, and Pat, his now his adoptive mom, said it was love at first sight. Um, and the day that he moved into their home on the base, he arrived wearing a a t-shirt that said number one son on the front and they renamed Mark's Steve Carter Jr. And ended up moving to New Jersey where he had a wonderful childhood. So 
Even when the DNA came back positive, Steve says he was hesitant to reunite with his relatives. He said, I was terrified. And his adoptive mother, Pat, said they found the news kind of threatening, actually. She said, like, on an emotional level, I felt like we had taken somebody else's child, even though that wasn't true. Because they had no idea that he had been, like, that he had a father out there who was looking for him. So... So he he was kind of slow to reconnect because it was like such a shock. But a month later, Steve finally called his older half-sister, Jennifer, and and she said, I just wanted to reach through the phone and hug him. And the pair has spent like countless hours on the phone discovering their, they have all these similarities. Uh-huh. And, and after all, Jennifer was the reason he was found. And Charlene Tanako of the Missing Child Center in Hawaii said if it wasn't for her, it would still be a cold case. And when Steve called Mark, the son he says he never gave up hope was alive, Mark was speechless. All he could say was, wow, oh, wow, wow. And Steve told the media in 2012 that he was going to approach getting to know his biological family slowly, but was happy he discovered the truth. He said it was a happy ending to a story that usually isn't a happy ending. Good things do happen. Although Charlotte Moriarty has never been found. And if she was alive today, she would be 75 years old. Wow. So there's all this. I looked on websleuths.com, which, you know, they kind of like go missing people's cases and cold cases. People go in and kind of try to put together clues and solve things. And, And in this case, you know, they, of course, were like, Mark did it <laughs> the whole time, and then yeah, uh, and then we're shocked when when baby Steve was found alive, and they have found some, a couple of people who could be have been Charlotte, a couple like Jane Doe's that they believe could have been Charlotte, who, but none of that has ever been concern, confirmed. So, wow. So she could still be out there, or something could Maybe have happened to her. It's, I mean, it's very herself. sad. Yeah. Maybe she'll find herself too. But isn't that nutso? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, that's my crazy story. That is a crazy story. Wow. Oh my gosh. I like, I can't imagine Googling yourself and finding out that you were kidnapped. Finding that you were like, you're not kidnapped. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I guess he was kind of kidnapped. I mean, but just that he was missing and, and. Right. Then and just because of the way that like uh, technology and the system and that there was no communication, like that he was on the same island as his father the whole time. the whole time. Yeah, and it's actually, I mean, and you know, poor Mark was like the prime suspect. And actually, there was there I found um, like an article that talked about. So he went through a divorce with his wife that he married afterwards and had two daughters with this woman Janine and Janine's lawyer actually when they were negotiating custody used the fact that he was a suspect in the disappearance of his wife and an infant son like tried to use that against him and actually said that he was suspected of murdering them and he ended up suing that lawyer because he is like that is you that slander like you can't say you know that is i'm not you know i didn't do that and so this guy not only was his son taken away from him but he was the suspect like everybody just thought he did he did something to them wow so 
kind of crazy. I couldn't find anything like super updated about what their relationship is. Um, I assume they probably just want to keep it out of the media, which is their prerogative. Yeah. But I'm glad they found each other. Man, that's incredible. I think we should all just like Google ourselves real quick just to make sure. (laughs) Just, you know, just check out (laughs) missingkids.com. Reverse image search your face. Yeah. See what you find. (laughs) Oh, man. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. Are you ready for a love story? I am ready for a love story. Oh, good. Because this is a good one. Um, Okay, I'm going to give you a hands up. It's going to sound like I'm telling you a true crime story at first. Okay. (laughs) But hold on to your hats. All right. Because it's actually a love story. All right. Okay. So my story came from an article for the marshallproject.org written by Maurice Chama, Uh an article for the New York Times written by Vincent Malazzi, and an article for the Innocent Project written by staff. Okay. Thank you, staff. Good job. Thank you, staff. Probably, I'm guessing, some law students. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. In February of 1976, also a story from the 70s. All right. um, Taking it back. In February of 1976, Sunny Jacobs, a 28-year-old mother of two, was riding in the passenger seat of a car with her husband at the time, Jesse Tafaro. Also in the car was their 10-month-old daughter and Sunny's nine-year-old son, who was from her first marriage. Okay. And the car was being driven by a man named Walter Rhodes Jr., Walter was a friend of her husband's. The two had actually met during a stint in prison, and they had become friends. They were in the car driving from Miami to their friend's house in West Palm Beach when suddenly two police officers pulled the car over at a rest stop in Broward County. And then what happened next would change the course of many people's lives for a very long time. So it's not exactly clear who shot the first bullet, but somewhere between Walter, the driver of the car, uh-huh. and the two police officers, guns were fired on both ends, and it ended with both police officers being killed. Oof. Yeah. So Sunny, her husband Jesse, and Walter were all arrested and charged with the murder of both police officers. Even though Sunny, uh, both Sunny and Jesse told the police that it was Walter that had fired the gun, Walter was able to strike a plea bargain and testified that it was Sonny and Jesse who killed the two police officers. And with that, Walter Rhodes was sentenced to life in prison, and Sonny and Jesse were both sentenced to death. Oof. Yeah. And so in 1981, um, Sunny was actually able to win an appeal with the Florida Supreme Court uh-huh. and got her sentence changed from death to life in prison. But she still had to spend life in prison. And this is a quote from Sunny. She said, when they first locked me in my cell, I felt so alone. Six steps, door to toilet, and you could touch the walls. A metal shelf on one side and a thin mattress and a pillow. I was in a building alone since I was the only woman on death row in Florida at the time. I realized I needed to take care of myself. If they release me someday, I didn't want to bring such negativity home to my children um, to be a bitter, angry person. So I did yoga and meditation as a way to open myself up to positivity. Wow. Um, Yeah. It's like, it's amazing that even then she thought of her children and their future and like, I have to keep myself 
kind. And so she said that she started to think about her time in jail um, in a new way. And this actually like breaks my heart. She said, I thought, well, I have servants for the first time in my life feeding me, doing my dishes, my laundry. I have no work, no bills, and free electricity. Isn't that nice? I turned my cell into a sanctuary. <laughs> it's just like it breaks yeah. my heart for women everywhere <laughs> right? because but- we kind of feel you on that. It's like we're all like <laughs> – that is kind of is jail nicer than like yeah. the responsibilities that we have every day, you know? Well, it's like it's we, just- so many women I know or mothers I know have like joked like I mean, I wouldn't yeah. mind being like in the hospital for like a couple weeks, right? Yeah. Where you're like I don't want anything really bad to happen to me, but just like a, enough that I can't do anything. Like, yeah. You're like, "Oh, I know. It's it's so sad. So she was getting herself to a better place while in jail. I mean, trying to stay strong. She says she tore a, a newspaper into strips and wove it into a mat and covered the toilet. And then um, she made another mat and set it by the door as her like special eating area. Like she really – it took a lot of strength for her to stay so positive, but she managed to do it. But then unfortunately, while she was in jail, um, her parents who were raising her two children actually died in the crash of the Pan Am flight 759. Oh my god! In Louisiana. I know. She said it was the most devastating time in my life. And she still wears her mother's wedding ring around her neck. Not only did she lose her parents, but then her children were forced to go into the foster care system. Oh, isn't that awful? And then Sunny, um, so she was still married to her husband, Jesse, and they exchanged letters in prison. And she said, anything he touched or that he wrote on or that he licked with his tongue, I was keeping. I existed on those, I existed on those letters. So she, you know, really clung to uh, having her husband. But on May 4th, 1990, while she was still in prison, her husband, Jesse was put to death in a Florida electric chair. Oh, I know. And so, um, Jan, so this is I, getting sad. I know. <laughs> I told you. I warned you. You did, but okay. So, with all this tragedy, she continued to fight for her release, and then, uh, which finally came in 1992, 17 years after she was arrested, and her conviction was overturned because Walter Rhodes, the guy that uh, uh, that was the one that did shoot the police officers eventually yeah. confessed to murdering the two officers. So she was finally released. So had she maintained her innocence the whole time? The whole time, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And said, she said the world became, she was released, but she said the world had become a place I didn't know anymore. She said that she had entered the solitary confinement inside the Broward Correctional Institution. Um, she says, as quote, as a 28-year-old vegetarian hippie, and then she exited prison as a 45-year-old orphan, widow, and grandmother. Oh, so heartbreaking. So she decided to take this experience that she lived through and was like, I'm going to take my experience and help other people experiencing the same thing. And she made that her mission. So she turned it into good by helping other people who were wrongly accused and incarcerated. And she began to work with an organization called Journey of Hope, which is a group that organizes uh, speaking tours against the death penalty. Okay. So 
in the late 1990s, um, she was at a march in Texas when a woman saw her speak and she was moved by her. Um, this woman was an Irish woman from Amnesty International. And she invited Sonny to come to Ireland to speak at an Amnesty International event. Mm-hmm. And so while she was Sonny was still at this same march in Texas, she ended up meeting this singer-songwriter named Steve Earle. I know Steve Earle. Do you? Not as a person. I know. I like so <laughs> in the article that I read made it sound like he was very famous, but I don't know that. Oh, he is very famous. He is okay. Very famous. I believe I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. So um and so they, she ended up meeting Steve Erland because Steve Earl was at the march because he once spoke with a man that was on death row, on Texas death row. Like they had communication and like wrote letters, I guess, and he got to know him. And then he witnessed his execution and he said that it completely traumatized him. And from that moment on, he also fought to end the death penalty. So when they got to talking, Sonny told Steve that she was like, oh, I was just asked to go to Ireland to speak. And he was like, oh, you got to go. And when you go, you need to meet this guy named Peter Pringle. But he didn't tell her anything about this guy. He just said, oh, well, you have to meet Peter Pringle. Because he has the most fun name in the whole wide world. It is. It sounds (laughs) delicious. So um, Sunny went to Ireland. Um, She met another person that told her like, oh, well, you've got to meet Peter Pringle. And she was like, who is this guy? You know, that everybody keeps telling me about. And so she asked this person for Peter Pringle's phone number. And so she called him and was like, hey, why don't you come to my speech? You know, everybody keeps talking about you <laughs> like yeah. I need to meet you. So when they got to this place in Galway for her speech, she was preparing for her speech in this room above a pub. And this giant man comes up to her and he says, oh, you must be Sonny Jacobs. And then Sonny said, and you must be Peter Pringle. And he told her, listen. And I'll sit in the front room so you'll have a friendly face to look at while you're talking. So while she was giving her speech that night, every time she looked over at Peter, she saw that he was like very emotional and was crying. Yeah. And so after her speech was finished, Peter waited for her by the door of the pub. She said to him, like, I'd love to talk to you more, but I'm actually told that we're leaving. And then Peter told Sonny, well, you can stay with me and I'll take you to your next talk tomorrow. And so she said that, you know, here she was in this foreign country and thinking about going to this strange man's house. Yeah. You know, she was, that just seemed weird to her, but the woman that was driving her knew Peter Pringle and liked him. So they, so they went. And so she ended up staying the night at his house, but it was all just friendship. Yeah. But while they were talking, she asked him like, well, what is your interest in all of this? You know, men don't usually cry at my lectures. And then he told her that he had been wrongly convicted too. (gasps) And he had been sentenced to death. And she asked him, what were you convicted of? And he said, killing two policemen. No. Isn't that wild? So in July of 1980, when Peter was 41 years old and he was a divorced father of four children, he was accused of being one of three men who had murdered two police officers during a bank robbery in Balagadrian. I'm saying that wrong, Ireland. And he had been sentenced to hang after his conviction. And his lawyers were able to win a stay of his original execution in December 19th, 1980. 
and then it was reset for June 8th, 1981. And he said that when his hanging was only weeks away, on May 27, 1981, Ireland's president commuted his sentence to 40 years without parole, just weeks away from when he was supposed to be hung. Wow. And so Peter, um, who actually, he had dropped out of school when he was 13, he decided to serve as his own counsel. So he says that he became something of a jailhouse lawyer. So he spent his time in prison learning law and he was for himself, he was able to prove that an interrogating officer had written down his alleged confession before any interrogation had actually taken place. Wow. Yeah. So he was able to prove that from jail. And so in 1995, the case was quashed by the Court of Criminal Appeal on the grounds that his conviction was unsafe and unsatisfactory, and he was finally set free. Wow. Yeah. So Sunny couldn't believe like how similar his story was to hers, you know? And then when she asked him where, uh, how he got through his jail time you know peter said through yoga and meditation and sunny was like i that's what i did yoga and meditation. <laughs> I, and love then, <laughs> I love pizza so she said that in her head this is a quote from her she said now my head is going bing 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 i hear this little spirit guide saying do you get it yet this is a setup he had four kids when he went in i had two kids i felt like the universe had put us together yeah so after that following night when she gave her lecture, the second lecture, they ended up going to a hotel, uh, but they just sat on separate beds and talked to each other about forgiveness. Um, And they, they talked about how when that both of them, when they had been released, they both decided that they would not engage in bitterness or recrimination, that they would just live a life of healing and positivity. And so they talked for three and a half hours that night and then they said goodnight and they went into different rooms. And he said, the next morning, I didn't want her to think I wasn't attracted to her, but he was in a relationship still. Uh And so she went back to the United States, but they kept in touch. And then soon they became like the only person that they each other wanted to talk to because they were the only people that could really understand. Yeah. I'm like, that's such a specific, horrible thing to have happened in your life and to find someone else who had the exact same thing is like, what a blessing. It's got to feel like, oh, this is a lifeline. Yeah. And so there was actually a movie made about Sonny's ordeal and it was called In the Blink of an Eye. And um, so he had watched it one night and he said that it triggered, he said, there's a quote, it triggered a grief that I had been suppressing, a grief over the life I hadn't had. And then the woman that he was living with at the time like came up to him because she he was like curled in a fetal position wailing. And she tried to console him, but he said that he intuitively pushed her away and just knew that Sonny was the only person he could talk to about this. Yeah. And so he um so they eventually he broke up with his uh, the woman he was seeing and he wanted more people to hear Sonny's story. So he arranged for a concert where Steve Earle would perform and she could speak. And so he made this whole tour where it became three concerts in three cities. So she was able to come back for a few days. 
And then, then when she was back in Ireland, she said that he very politely said that if I wanted to, I could sleep in his room with him. But if I didn't want to, that was okay. (laughs) And she said, I decided, well, let's give it a try. And then they were in a long distance relationship for three years before she moved to Ireland. And then they were married in November, 2011 in New York. Um, And they said that they, you know, that they knew that they were blessed and that they wanted to share um, their blessings with other people. And a lawyer who had, that they had met who had helped someone innocent get out of prison went to Sonny and Peter and asked them if they would maybe help their, her client that was having trouble with drugs and alcohol after being released. And he stayed with them in Ireland for a month And he, you know, they just gave him like love, compassion, told like shared stories with him and helped him find his worth. And he did really well. And so with that, that's how they founded what's called the Sunny Center, which is at their home in Galloway, which provides a sanctuary for exonerated people. Most of them come from the from the United States, mm-hmm. and it's a place where they can, people can receive spiritual, emotional, and physical support. That's and, amazing. Um, yeah, and so since 2010, there have been more than 14 exonerees that have um, gone to Ireland and stayed with them. And then there now there's a new location in Tampa, Florida, on land that was donated to them. And Sunny said, "When you are in prison, love is the first thing that disappears from your life. So it's the first thing we do. So the first thing we do for our exonerees is make them part of our family. We invite them into our home and shower them with unconditional love." There was one exoneree that had been wrongfully imprisoned for rape and murder when Mm -hmm. he was a a teenager. And when he left prison years ago, he was terrified of women. Yeah. Um, And he he couldn't really articulate that, but they knew by looking at him that he was. They said that he, like, he couldn't look women in the eye. So what they did was they just took him out and they introduced him to women, not as an exoneree, but as their friend. Yeah. And the, and then women greeted him openly. And then gradually he learned to respond and be more comfortable. And he went back to the United States with like a new confidence. So they say that they said that one of the biggest problems that they encounter is when people feel that they have no identity Um, except for having been wrongfully convicted. What they do is they try to find ways to identify them to where they're not identified by the worst thing that happened in their life. They said, we try to help them to see that you can find a new persona. You're an artist, a musician, a jewelry maker, a dog trainer, a goat milker. And so they continue to help people and they've both each written a book about their experiences. Hers is called Stolen Time and his is called About Time, both about their time in jail, wrongfully accused. Sunny told the Marshall Project, part of what we do is share the magic and beauty and love that Peter and I found together. Our paths were completely different, yet on the level where it really counts, we are very much alike. And I think that's why our relationship has lasted so long. It was about the deep stuff, the important stuff. And they still have both of their centers, the Sunny Center in uh, um, Ireland and Florida. And also on her website, which is thesunnycenter.com, they offer a YouTube channel with free guidance and guided relaxation therapy and meditations and and support. Yeah. And so they're still married and still in love and continuing to help 
others to this day. Jen, that's an amazing story. I told you that it was a love story. You, you just did. had to listen to me. I know. It just it got real <laughs> dark there for a minute. I know. It really did. It and really did. But wow. Like what? what? How amazing. That's amazing. I love it so I much. I mean, what are the odds, you know, like from across the world that they would meet and, and have – such similar story. Well, and just the fact that both of them were exonerated. I mean, that's that in yeah. itself is like, uh, you know, it doesn't happen very often. It's so hard to prove innocence. So it just is. That's amazing. And I'm so happy you shared that. Thanks. Thank you to Sunny and Peter. Yeah. Peter Pringle. Peter Pringle. <laughs> is she Sunny yeah. Pringle? No. Uh, well, I think she still goes by Sunny Jacobs. All right. Well, yeah. that's, she's missing an opportunity, but everything else I support. <laughs> well, she doesn't have the same alliteration. That's it's true. the alliteration that makes it fun. That's true. That's true. Um, okay. But yeah, it's a good story. It's a good um, story. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Yes, we Perfect. should. You go. I'm just going to talk about something very mundane, which is the weather. And I love the weather. It's amazing. What I don't love is that I feel like there's an elephant on my head because oh, of allergies. allergies already. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I've never, I mean, I had them a little bit before, but like it is, allergies are nuts here. Welcome to Georgia. Yeah. It is. I've never seen anything like it when like the, like your car will be, everything will be covered in yeah. this like pollen. It's so nuts. It hasn't happened yet, but it is. I can feel it. I'm waking oh, yeah. up and my eyes are like all gross. Um, but I just, you know, I can't be, I can't be mad when the weather is so beautiful. <laughs> I just can't, I can't be mad I at know. it. The weather's beautiful. We're all going to be vaccinated soon. And so, I mean, I just, and, and Jen told me that I should, I'm on top of the world, that life yeah. is good. Uh, and when I was bitching about some dumb stuff before we started. So I feel good. Good. I'm glad I could help you realize that you're on top of the world. <laughs> I gotta take life by the horns. Let Jesus take you're my in wheel. A good place. And, Let uh, Jesus take the wheel. Get vaccinated okay. and live my life. Yes. Awesome. What about you? Um, so I guess for something dumb is uh, so well. I'm very excited that you know things are starting to get back to normal. Um, the weather is nice, so we're doing more outdoor shows again. Yeah. Um, so my first outdoor show is tonight. By the time this airs, sorry, you missed it. You missed um, it. But but I'm so. What's dumb is like I'm so nervous because mm. I'm like, oh my god, I don't even remember how to do stand up comedy. Yeah, and I'm only doing like a 12 minute set, but I'm like, oh, 12 minutes, <laughs> and so I'm, that's dumb. I'm like super nervous about tonight, but hopefully it'll go well. It will. Um, I mean, well, you know in your heart that like. Once you get up there, it'll be great. Even if you don't have a great set, it'll be great. It'll be great to be there. It'll be great to be around friends. You're doing it with nice people. And it'll be good to do it. I mean, remember the time, yeah, like, well, I mean, this was probably like in August or something when you and I sat in a car and I was like, I don't even want to go out there. And we were both like, and then we went and it was amazing. And it was like raining. It was raining. And we had a good time. Yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then the something I love is, so I'm sure you guys have seen it, and you do have to get a um, subscription to Paramount Plus. <laughs> I but, didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I got it through my Amazon 
Prime uh-huh. Prime uh, account, and so, but I plan to like as soon as this is over, cancel it. But the real world reunion. So the original cast from thirty years ago uh-huh. is they're they they're back at the same loft in New York. No, Eric, like Heather, Kevin, Julie. They're all there. No way. The whole, every, all of them. And so they're doing like another season and so far it's so good. And then it's just made me go down. So also on Paramount Plus, if you, so, and I only discovered this because a friend, Millie DeCherico, whose podcast is awesome. It's called, I saw what you did. I've talked about before. Oh yeah. She posted about how all of the real world seasons are now available on Paramount Plus also. So I've been going down the rabbit hole of watching all these old episodes of The Real World from like 20 plus years ago. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's crazy. And it's really crazy to see how. It was like, so I started watching, you know, we started watching Real World when we were like, what, 10, 11 years old? Yeah. And the idea of like being old enough to be on the real world just seems so far away. And then like years go by and you're like, oh, like I can almost be on the real world. Uh And then you're like, oh, I've only got like two more years. To still be eligible for the real world. And then it's like, oh my, like, then that window closes and you're like, those are young people. Yeah. I would never be on the real world. Uh, yeah. Like, that's how long the real world has been going on. But anyway, I mean, it's I crazy. remember we used to make real world audition tape, pretend, yeah. real, not like actually audition for them, but like, like, be like, what would my audition tape be like? And yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, my real world window came and went so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my! I didn't you. even have time to send in a tape, <laughs> and the fact that we're talking about making a tape, like not, yeah, <laughs> like it was like a physical VHS tape that you would have yeah. to send in. <laughs> so, but it's just it's real fun to like go back and watch all of these things and like things that you saw at the age of like eleven and twelve that seemed like such a like big big. Some things were really big and heavy and then some yeah. things seem so big and heavy or these people seem so mature and now you're watching it and you're like, oh my God, those kids were 19. They're 19. They were 20. Yeah. They were They're like, they were child. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just really crazy. It's interesting. Oh, I'm very so. interested in watching that reunion. Do it. Oh, man. Look, if you got 48 to 96 hours to kill. Yeah, I do. <laughs> what else am I doing? <laughs> just go down a real world rabbit hole. Oh, that's amazing. So that's that. Cool. Well, I think that's our episode. I think so. I think we did a really good job. I think we did. I think those were two amazing stories. Yeah, we did it. Okay. Well, you guys, you know where to find us. You can find us on on all of the socials at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a rate and review. Hit that subscribe. Tell a friend. Do all the things. We love you so much. And get out there with a vaccine and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum,